Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 4, beginning with verse 25. Uh, This will be projected on the worship screens, but you can also uh, use uh, the the pew Bibles in front of you, um, or if you have an electronic device with a Bible app, you can use that as well. As we read God's Word this morning, I would encourage you to pay very close attention to the reading and to note anything that stirs your heart, anything that grabs your attention. And if that happens for you, I would encourage you to write that down on the handout that you received this morning, uh, which is called the Lexio Divina Sheet. I usually read from the New Revised Standard Version, but this morning I'm going to be reading from the Common English Bible. So hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, after you have gotten rid of lying, each of you must tell the truth to your neighbor because we are parts of each other in the same body. Be angry without sinning. Don't let the sun set on your anger. Don't provide an opportunity for the devil. Thieves should no longer steal. Instead, they should go to work using their hands to do good so that they will have something to share with whoever is in need. Don't let any foul words come out of your mouth. Only say what is helpful when it is needed for building up the community so that it benefits those who hear what you say. Put aside all bitterness, losing your temper, anger, shouting, slander, along with every other evil. Be kind, compassionate, and forgiving to each other in the same way God forgave you in Christ. Therefore, imitate God like dearly loved children. Live your life with love, following the example of Christ who loved us and gave Himself up for us. He was a sacrificial offering that smelled sweet to God. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. It is a simple but reliable principle of human life. How people talk reveals much about who they are. Do you know what I'm talking about? Imagine that a person comes up to you and says this, I was out driving the other day when I had a punctured tire. I pulled off to the verge and opened the boot. There was no spare. So I opened the bonnet. Fortunately, a lorry driver saw the raised bonnet and stopped to help me out. Now anyone who understands what I just said has probably spent some time in the British Isles. (laughs) But for those of you who haven't, this is the American translation. I was out driving the other day when I had a flat tire. I pulled off to the shoulder and opened the trunk. There was no spare, so I opened the hood. Fortunately, a truck driver saw the raised hood and stopped to help me out. (laughs) 
But in addition to giving us clues about where people might be from, the way that we talk can also reveal something about how committed we are to following Jesus. Something that has nothing to do with accent or vocabulary, but everything to do with how we use the gift that God has given to us in language. Specifically, do our words hurt or do they heal? Do they work in service to the truth or falsehood? Do our words build up or do they tear down? Such are the concerns that we read about in the book of Ephesians, especially chapters 4 and 5. Here we find a collection of miscellaneous ethical advice, including instructions that help Christians understand how to use the gift of language. So I'd like to circle back to our scripture reading this morning and look at just a few things. First, we read in Ephesians 4.25, putting away falsehood, let all of us speak the truth to our neighbors, for we are members of one another. In other words, our speech is supposed to be honest. And while we might think that this is a no-brainer, experience tells us that it's easier said than done. You know? Say amen. While we like to see ourselves as fundamentally honest people, we often fail to speak the truth because we don't want to hurt people's feelings. We often assume that if we say something that hurts or angers someone, that we're being unloving and even unchristian because, after all, Christianity is all about love, right? And so this sometimes prevents us from telling people the whole truth or even causes us to lie to them. Then we rationalize this lie by saying to ourselves, well, it's really for their own good. Because if I tell them the truth, it will only hurt their feelings. Or we might fail to be honest because we don't want to stir up conflict. If I tell a person the truth, then maybe he will get mad at me and soon we'll be fighting with each other. So it's better to withhold the truth or part of the truth or to lie in order to keep the peace. Or we sometimes don't want to tell the truth because we don't want to take responsibility for our own actions. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, what they don't know won't hurt them. Another really famous one is what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? But what we really mean when we say things like this is I don't want him to find out because then I'll have to accept the natural consequences of my actions. And in these kinds of situations, all of us, including your pastor and any other pastor that you've heard, we often are tempted to rationalize our dishonesty by downplaying its impact, and labeling this dishonesty as a little white lie. You know, a lie that's not really a big deal, something that's small, something understandable and easily forgivable. You know, like when the dental hygienist asks if you've been flossing regularly. As a side note, when they look in your mouth, they already know, so you shouldn't lie to your dental hygienist, right? 
Again, this is a way of downplaying our dishonesty and telling ourselves that it will have little, if any, impact on our relationships. But we all know from experience that honesty is the bedrock of trust, and trust is the bedrock of all of our most important relationships. It is true that big lies can destroy a relationship in a flash, and small lies can destroy a relationship over time. But the truth is that both are deadly. And this is why the Bible is really clear through and through that we should speak the truth and that we should do that in love. The problem for many is that they equate love with not hurting people's feelings or avoiding conflict at all costs. And this misunderstanding tempts them to fudge the truth. But deep down inside, we know that it's wrong. And evidence of this is we try to cover our tracks. Right? Rather, to love someone is to have their best interest at heart. And yes, this includes caring about how people feel and not trying to intentionally or even unintentionally hurt their feelings in unnecessary ways. That wouldn't be very loving. But it also means telling people the truth so that they can see their own blind spots, which all of us have, heal, grow, mature, and learn to take responsibility for their actions. Can you imagine trying to raise your kids or grandkids with the philosophy, I'm going to be so loving that I'm never going to do or say anything to hurt their feelings. Indeed, child psychologists tell us that this is perhaps the most unloving thing that you can do because this approach will prevent your kids from growing up and becoming responsible adults. Their bodies will grow older, but emotionally and psychologically, they will remain petulant, entitled, intolerable children that nobody wants to be around. Does anybody know adults like that? <laughs> Rather, we need to hear the truth even when the truth hurts. And if we love people, we will tell them the truth even when it hurts. And we need to learn how to effectively navigate conflict in a loving way because truth and conflict, they are the pathway to growth and lasting transformation. You just can't grow. You can't change without truth and conflict. And this means that sometimes the most loving thing that you can do is to tell someone a painful truth or to wrestle with them in challenging conflict. Furthermore, while we might think that there are inconsequential little white lies, the Bible says that's just simply not true. For even a small lie undermines trust. Do you know that to be true in your own experience? And those small lies can add up over time and break some of our most important relationships. So speaking the truth always and everywhere is one of the most important ways that we talk like a Christian. But the problem is we are regularly tempted to do otherwise and often fail to be honest as we go about our day. And anybody that tells you they don't struggle with this, they're just not being honest with you, right? 
If this rings true to your experience, then I want you to hear these words. Don't be discouraged. If we stay close to God in daily prayer, when we violate the truth, then God will set off ethical alarm bells inside of our heads and our conscience. And if we pay attention to these alarms, if we honestly confess our dishonesty, if we self-correct and make amends, and then practice, consistently practice telling the truth, then we can grow to be more honest people. Because honesty, and this is not only in the Christian tradition, but Aristotle talks about this in his classic book, The Nicomachean Ethics, honesty can be developed like any other skill with practice. In other words, the more you tell the truth, the better you get at telling the truth and the more honest of a person that you become. And remember that we are shooting for progress, not perfection. Say that with me. Progress, not perfection. Second, it says in our scripture reading this morning, be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil. This verse is striking to some people because it is instructing us. The Bible is instructing us to be angry. And that's a little jarring. Again, it says, be angry, but do not sin. The reason this sounds so strange to a lot of people who grew up in the church is because many of us were taught that anger itself is sinful and that we should avoid being angry. And some of us have been taught that the most important characteristic of a Christian is to be nice. Be nice. Don't make waves. Smile all the time. Be soft-spoken. And truth be told, to be a doormat. Think of Ned Flanders on The Simpsons. Anybody watch The Simpsons? <laughs> Half the power tools in Homer's garage belong to Ned. Homer borrowed most of them a long time ago, but never returned them. Nor does he have any intention on returning them. He's even scratched out Ned's name on the tools and wrote his own. But still, Homer keeps walking up to the fence and saying, hey Ned, can I borrow a tool? And what does Ned Flanders unfailingly say? Okie dokie neighbor. Right? Here you go. And what's interesting is that in The Simpsons, Ned is portrayed as a Christian. He's portrayed as someone who reads the Bible all the time. But clearly, he has skipped over passages like Ephesians 4.26, which again says, be angry, but do not sin. Indeed, this passage seems to suggest that it's normal for Christians to get angry. And you know what? It is normal for Christians to get angry because God has given you anger as a gift so that you will know when you are in danger or your values are being violated. Thus, when you read the teachings of Jesus, you never hear Him give the command, Thou shalt be nice. Jesus never says that. He certainly doesn't say it in the way that Ned Flanders is unfailingly nice. It's simply wrong from a biblical perspective to equate anger 
with sin. Looking at the New Testament, we see several examples of Jesus himself getting angry. Take, for example, Mark 3, 1-5, where the author says that Jesus looked around at the Pharisees with anger because he was grieved by their hardness of heart. Jesus got angry at them because they were getting in the way of him healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath. They were putting rules before people. And this made Jesus mad. And an even better known example is when Jesus strides through the temple courtyard and overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling sacrificial doves. In Mark's version of the story, Jesus cries out, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. Doesn't seem very nice. And in John's version of the story, Jesus starts swinging a whip, cracking a whip made of cords. And the difference in these two examples looking at Jesus compared to the situations in which we typically feel our anger boiling over lies in the reasons for his anger. Most of the time, When we find ourselves raising our voices and getting red in the face, it's because we feel personally injured or abused in some way. And so the focus is on ourselves. We feel offended or injured, so we respond by getting angry. But when the Bible speaks approvingly of anger, it is usually not in response to our own sense of personal injury, but to an injury or an injustice inflicted on someone else, especially those who were vulnerable or outcasts. In other words, the kind of anger that we feel when we're sticking up for people who have a hard time sticking up for themselves. So when Jesus gets mad at the Pharisees, it's because that poor man with a withered hand might not get healed. And that made him angry. When he swings the whip of cords in the temple courtyard, it's on behalf of the poor, the devout pilgrims who were getting swindled by a corrupt system. When you think about it, many of the great reforms in human history would never have happened without righteous anger. Think of where the descendants of African slaves might be were it not for the righteous anger of people like William Wilberforce who labored tirelessly for much of his life until the English Parliament finally abolished slavery. Think today of those who fight against human trafficking in the United States. Freedom fighters who keep publicizing inconvenient truths and exposing those who are abusing women. In all of these examples, we see that the goal is not to demonize and completely eradicate anger, but to direct it at the right thing. And that's really important. And not only to direct it at the right thing, but to manage our anger in ways that do not lead to resentment and hatred. It says in Ephesians, do not let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, don't hang on to your anger obsessively. Feel it. Acknowledge it. Express it in appropriate times and appropriate ways and inappropriate ways. And then let it go knowing that unexpressed anger will destroy you. 
And don't be mistaken. Those who live their lives driven by anger eventually pay a bitter personal price, something that is eloquently described by Friedrich Bruckner in his book, Wishful Thinking. Listen to these words. This is what he says. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontation still to come, to savor the last toothsome morsel of the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that what you are woofing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Finally, Ephesians says that if you want to talk like a Christian, then your words should build people up, not tear them down. Paul says, let no evil talk come out of your mouths, but only what is useful for building up. And the translation evil as an evil talk is actually a cleaned up version compared to the original Greek. The word literally means something like putrid, like rotting fish. I wasn't going to tell you this, but one time Emma went to the grocery store and bought a bunch of groceries, including a big bag of shrimp. And when she was driving, the shrimp rolled forward out of her sight, and she took out all the groceries and didn't see the shrimp. And her car began to take on a really foul odor as we looked for the shrimp and wondering, did we leave them at the grocery store? No, they were rotting in the trunk. (laughs) And if you've smelt rotting fish or rotting seafood, you know that putrid smell is repulsive. So what kind of talk is putrid? It's tempting to think that Paul here is talking about what my grandma called cussing. (laughs) That it's talking about profanity or obscenity. But as we read on, we discover that Paul is not talking about cussing. He says, and I quote, "...put away from you all bitterness and wrath and anger and wrangling and slander together with all malice, because this is what putrid language smells like." So he says, put away bitterness. Bitterness is the type of talk that keeps coming or keeps calling back to mind experiences of hurt or pain, which we have not forgiven and we refuse to let go of. You know what I'm talking about? When you're you're laying in bed and you're rehearsing it over and over again in your mind, recalling it, imagining what you might do if you could relive that moment, right? As you know, it is possible to wallow in victimhood. Some people go their whole lives feeling bitter about the way that their parents or their spouses or their children failed them. Or they castigate themselves for some missed opportunities decades in the past. I wish I had done that and I didn't. Bitter talk when it continues for a long time can cause terrible emotional harm to the speaker, not to mention the misery for everyone else who has to listen to their complaints. It's exhausting. 
The next on the list are wrath and anger, which we've already discussed. And the next is the word wranglings. This is a creative translation of the Greek word that literally means shouting or um, raucous outbursts. If there is a place for anger in the Christian life, and surely there is, it's got to be an anger that is more focused and tempered and disciplined in nature if it's going to accomplish anything over the long haul. So we can't just let it all hang out and vomit our anger on people. Next comes the word slander, and this was the one that was most interesting to me. The Greek word here is blasphema, which you may recognize as the English word blasphemy. So slander in Greek is blasphema. Usually we think of blasphemy as taking the Lord's name in vain, but in the original Greek it means slanderous, gossipy remarks of any kind. Another Greek word for slander is diabolos, which you may recognize as the root of diabolical, which means devilish. Gossip is blasphemous and diabolical and evil. This word occurs early in our reading, this word blasphema, where it talks about not letting the sun go down on your anger. Again, it says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not make room for the devil, the diablos. Literally, it's do not make room for the slanderer. This is where the idea, uh, this is where we get the idea of the devil being the father of lies. To slander another person is to serve a diabolical purpose. Bible scholar William Barclay says that there are reputations murdered over China teacups every day, which is a very British reference to the conversations that happen over tea time. But we could just as easily say that the reputations of that, that there are reputations murdered over cardboard Starbucks cups every day. I'm sure you get the point, because the temptation is universal. There is a part of us that just loves to pass on that juicy bit of gossip, regardless of whether we know it to be true. And social media has taken this to a whole new level. The speed with which a slanderous mark, remark can make the rounds these days is breathtaking. And if you've ever had someone get on Facebook and trash you, you know what I'm talking about. You know how painful it can be. The final word on the list is malice or hateful feelings. Despite what we see every day on cable news or hear on talk radio, our speech should not be hateful or mean. It should not be mean-spirited because such speech is diabolical and death-dealing. And if you are consuming, repeatedly consuming this kind of mean, hateful speech, it can become addictive, can it? It can become addictive. And it can take you away from the purposes of God and take you away from the proper uses of the gift of language and cause you to misrepresent one of the greatest gifts that God has given to you, which is the gift of language. So get away from it. 
Get away from it. Listen to something else. But in closing, Paul doesn't just tell us how we shouldn't talk. He also tells us how we should talk, how we should use the gift of language. He says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. You will never, ever, ever, somebody say never, you will never have a lasting relationship without forgiveness because every single person you know is going to disappoint you and let you down. It's what it means to be human. If you hadn't figured this out by now, maybe that just set you free. And forgiveness is a central tenet in Christianity. We just can't move forward. We can't get unstuck. We can't heal. We can't grow. We can't achieve God's purpose for us unless we have the ability to forgive. And it is a process, and I believe that many times it is something that we cannot do on our own, but we have to allow God to do through us. But nevertheless, forgiveness is important. And so be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ has forgiven you. This is the sort of talk that Christians should be engaged in. Positive, upbuilding talk is a counterweight to anger, slander, and all the rest. It's the thou shalt to balance out all of the thou shalt nots of the previous verses. So kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. Such are the building blocks of truly Christian conversation. And to embrace these values, my friends, is not a sign of weakness. It is not the niceness of Ned Flanders or allowing ourselves to be a doormat. Quite the opposite. It is a sign of incredible strength and a grateful response to the grace that we have already received from Christ Jesus. So they say that talk is cheap. But I would say not this kind of talk. Honest. Compassionate. And caring discourse is the rarest of commodities amidst the sound and fury of the soul-destroying hate speech that is all around us. It is a type of speech that Christ commands us to utter. It's how to talk like a Christian. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, we thank You so much for the gift of language because it is through this gift that we can think and reflect. We can gain self-awareness. And as we come to know ourselves better with brutal honesty, God, it can help us to figure out how we are impacting other people in the way that we use our language. We ask that You will forgive us, God, when we have used our words in ways that have been diabolical, slanderous, and mean. We ask that You will forgive us when we have failed to tell people the truth out of fear of how they might respond to us. Give us the courage to speak the truth and give us the wisdom to speak that truth in love. And help us to use our words in ways that will truly build others up and build up this body of Christ here in Cocoa Beach. Let us be a shining light, an example of what it means to talk like a Christian, 
to those around us, whether we are here or in our homes, with our families, at work, at school, in social gatherings, wherever we are, God, help us to be bearers of light, to set the example, because we know that there are a lot of counterexamples, God, pulling us in a different direction. Help us to be a counterbalance to that. Fill our hearts with love and wisdom as we seek to be obedient to your commands. We pray these things in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen.